Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Kevin Baxter. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mackey. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Spring from the Wallery. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gassim Nandirishan from Not the Footish. Yes, you are indeed listening to Not the Footy Show, the first show of 2024. And we do have a really special guest for you. I think you're going to enjoy this, especially if you're a football fan. We're catching up with Niall Cooper, who's the CEO of Fair Game, who are looking to make football sustainable once again in mainly England, but also Wales and presumably in the future, Scotland as well. Anyway, I'm Ashley Morrison. I'm John Lee. John, good to see you. Happy New Year. Same to you. And to anybody who might be listening. Absolutely. And uh, I believe, uh, did you catch any of the Test Series? Oh, yeah. I, I thought it was actually quite an enthralling series. Um, I mean, when uh, Pepsi Cola first landed here, no one gave them much of a chance <laughs> against such a strong Toyota team. Uh, but they put up, you know, you lose a session here or there. They just weren't good enough in the end, were they, actually? Yeah. It is funny, isn't it, how uh, the brands are just taking over. The one thing I don't like being a cricket person is I don't like it on the sweater. I really don't like logos on the sweater. That should just be, like, for me, the England cricket jumper, the three lines in the middle of the sweater, that was it. Never put anything else. Sure, I don't mind, not the sweaters. You've got this tiny little embroidery up in the top left-hand corner of your shirt that... Oh, yeah, what's that? You have to walk... You probably have to be standing within two feet of the person to be able to read what it says. But there's Toyota. Great big letters across the middle of their chest. I think when it comes to national teams, I don't care about clubs and that. I get all that, but a national representative team? No, that's just not on. Who do they really represent? Well, Obviously, it's Toyota because they've got the big letters on the shirt. But I don't like when they actually now, as we've seen with the Qantas Wallabies, we've now got the Subway Socceroos. I don't like that because, again, it's like, well, the national team belongs to everybody. So who makes the decision that it's okay to have like an American company in Subway as the prefix to our national team? I I just think that's wrong. Who makes that decision and why have I not been consulted? Well, you know, it, it is good to see, though, that um, that the Socceroo boys will be doing their very best to bring glory to continental roles everywhere. <laughs> Seriously. Well, um, the, well, don't forget this, is a, this lot are a different breed. Are they? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, this, this wonderful advertising campaign where they're saying, and it's upset quite a few former Socceroos who are saying, what makes them different? Why can't they stick to the values that we all had? We thought they were pretty good. But the classic is, John, the very first snippet of this advert that they've clearly paid a lot of money to, and the advertising agency, I think, has conned Football Australia, to be honest, because the production standards on it, I think, are pretty poor. But anyway, they've, the very first thing, they go... Different is in our DNA. Now, if you understand DNA, isn't DNA something that is carried on through every line? So, therefore, that means everybody's been different. Every team has been different. It doesn't mean that you are a different breed. It means that the Socceroos have always been a different breed. Who did cricket have in that ad that they were running before the test this year? They were talking about the greatest team of their generation. Isn't every national team supposed to be the greatest team of their generation? Isn't that how it works? Isn't that why they're selected? Because they're the best of their generation? Well, the, the classic was when they were pumping uh, David Warner for his last test, oh, yeah. and they had this big ad, and Adam Gilchrist goes, oh, so along the lines of David Warner, 
in one word. Box office. Uh, Adam, that's two words. <laughs> With a hyphen. <laughs> it's like, you know, how does that even get to air? It just makes Gilchrist look a dill. It makes cricket look a dill. It's just so amateur. It does my head in. How many comedy shows have you seen where there, there's some line like, I've got three words for you, and they say four. <laughs> oh, that's a big joke. Oh, oh exactly. Yeah. Well, Dave Warner's another subject, isn't it? I mean, Oh, man, you could fill a year's worth of shows with him, couldn't you? Look, credit to Dave. Let, let's just say Dave Warner, the cricketer, has been pretty good. He's, he's been very good for our country across three formats. Probably one of the first. He's done very well. And, and that was, yeah. I was going to say, over the three formats, I don't think yeah. there's been a player to match him. Probably not. In, um, probably not in any country, actually. Well, you could go through, we'd have to go through the records, but yeah. he's certainly a standout in that area. I mean, who, who thought he would end up with the test record he, he would have when he made his 2020 debut way back whenever it was? Yeah. Hats off to him for that. Very good. Could do with some PR work occasionally. Yeah. But the hyperbole around him, that's even, that's the worst thing about it. Yeah. Um, okay. Baggy green, whatever. Yeah, he had a man look okay. Get, get over it. Get over it. Whatever. He's not the first bloke to do that by a long stretch. Yeah. I think his wife could do with occasionally just not actually talking to the media because sometimes I think some of the stuff she comes out with. She's got to remember that she hasn't scored any hundreds for Australia. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think she's been very supportive to him, yep, which is great. Is, yep. But sometimes I think she, what she has to say is not relevant. But it brings to mind, and especially with Nathan Lyon's 500th test wicket, once again, I didn't think he'd ever get there. I thought, when, certainly when he first started, remember the test against South Africa where he had a day to bowl at him, and, and they batted the day out. And uh, I thought then, well, has he really got it? Because it was tailor-made for a spinner to come in and course and have it. Yeah. But well done to them. But, like, greatest ever? Well, his record as an off-spinner is tremendous. Using cumulative records to adjudge greatness is just a joke. I 100% Of the 100% highest agree. order is yeah. a joke. Because, you know, <laughs> Nathan Lyon has been playing test cricket for about half the length of time, or Less time than the guy like Bill O'Reilly has. For but how many tests has he for, Yeah, for four or five times the number of tests. So, 125 test matches. Yeah. So he's had a, he's had a fair run at, but it's still a great achievement on its, of itself, yep. in and of itself. Well done. And, and again, I mean, I got in this argument with someone when I was working overseas where they were saying he is the greatest offspin. I said, well, what are you basing that on? Because I think there were better offspin bowlers than him in test cricket in the past. I said, but I acknowledge that he has been fantastic. He's done really, really well. But if I was picking my world team, would he be my off spinner? Probably not. A world all time eleven. Yeah. Oh, and and the other one, of course, is Shane Warne, who, because of the activities around the Boxing Day Test and the Shane Warne Foundation, had a lot going on there. The kids were there, and they were doing heart tests and all this sort of stuff. I thought the Shane Warne Foundation folded. Oh, I don't know who's doing it. Doesn't matter. They were doing something, <laughs> but you know, the the recency bias that oh. many modern commentators have is just staggering. You you cannot make comparisons. You know, like Bill O'Reilly's the classic, mate. His record is everything Shane Warnes is, 
And Bill O'Reilly was actually bowling to players who could play spin bowling. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, look, and, and, I mean, if you look at Warren's record on the subcontinent, it actually wasn't that great. And to me, greatness is performing on all pitches around the world. Now, again, you're playing against bowlers, batsmen, who you exactly what you're saying there, who know how to play spin. And I remember there was an interview, I think it was with VVS Laxman in that test where they scored that a massive score to win the test. And he, one of the Aussie press guys goes, oh, you know, how did you find playing Shane Warne? And he goes, I happen to be a very good player of spin bowling. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that summed it up. It was like it was a stupid question. I mean, the guy batted brilliantly. We all witnessed it. And it's like, yeah, you know. And that's one of the great things about if you look at that West Indies side, you know, because we had the Australian press or one section of it trying to say that the current bowling lineup is the best there's ever been in world cricket. Rubbish. I mean, the West Indies in the 80s and 90s, you, you look at their record on all around the world, was phenomenal. Hey, look, I think Shane Warne is probably the... Um is he the is he the best spinner of his generation? If he's yes. not, yeah, of in my living memory, I'd have to say yes as well. But there's a lot of there's a lot of cricket that went on outside of my living memory as well. And I think if you're going to start making statements like that, and you've got to really do a big deep dive in stuff, you know. I, t- I tell you, still, and one of the best I ever saw live, and I saw Warren bowl live, was Abdul Qadir. Uh, yeah. at Lords. Bowl. He, he bowled England out at Lords. And I remember managing to switch seats. Uh, I was in the old man stand and managed to get a seat, uh, cause somebody was leaving and I said, can I have your ticket? And I sat behind the bowler's arm and just watched him. And it was one of the most mesmerizing displays of bowling I've ever seen. I actually don't think you can, you can make it as simple as Warren is the great. He's certainly the best I've seen in my short life. So far. Um, but I, I don't know that I could define it. Is he the best of that generation? There'd probably be two other guys you could probably throw in there, yeah. just off the top of your head, and the argument would be those three. Yeah. And But you could say about every one of them, if he's not the best, um, there's not m- many in front of him, that sort of... But the thing um, is, as well, it all comes down, it's a matter of personal opinion. Mate, the, the best fast bowler, two greatest fast bowlers I've ever seen, Michael Holding. Dennis Lilly. Mm-hmm. And I say that from sitting at the at the wacky ground, seeing with your own eyes, not on yep. television, yep. seeing with your own eyes. And the, the most amazing thing about both of them was the purity of their action from side on. That's why I think they're the great. They, to visually watch them bowling was just yep. magic. I agree with both of those authors. I think Marshall was phenomenal. Uh, yeah. And I remember being at Lords with my grandfather, and uh, I never forget Michael Holding was bowling then, and he turned to me and he goes, "He's the fastest I've seen since Larwood." Wow! Now I wish I'd had seen that because the grainy footage you see of him, yeah. he had a pretty cool action too. Yeah, and I mean he'd seen both, and it, yeah. and, it, and he was going. He said Larwood was quick. Oh, and uh, there's there's been pl- I wonder how fast Fred Spothorff really was. Yeah, the demon. Yeah, but you know. Did he just amble up and throw it over? And in those days, it was just all a bit of a giggle. Or was he just as much of a mongrel as Dennis Lilly and come just flogging in and letting them go? And what, what was his action like? What about Eddie Gilbert? 
Well, there's another good one. I mean, the only bowler to have ever knocked a bat out of Bradman's hands. He said he was the best bowler he'd faced, wasn't he? Uh, He only gave him two lines in any of his books. Did he? Mm Mm-hmm. I I wonder how much of that was to do with uh, just not wanting... Rather than being a sledge on Gilbert, just wanting to... I don't think it was a sledge, I think, yeah. But, I mean, Gilbert got him out a few times, although there was a time where Bradman... Hand him to every corner of the ground, you know. On a, you did that to every yeah. There's no, nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> you get that. Anyway, shall we move on to our guest? We shall. This is Gary Lineker, and you're listening to Not the Footy Show. Well, our guest today on the first show of 2024 is from the UK. He is the Chief Executive Officer of Fair Game, which is a body that's been set up basically to try and pull football back to be sustainable in England. I'll get him to explain how it all came about, but our guest on this show is Niall Cooper. Niall Cooper, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Brilliant. Great to be here, Ashley. Great to speak to you all and, and everybody over there. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking to you. And I mean, I, I suppose the first thing we have to talk about is how did Fair Game come into existence? Was it purely COVID or was there something bubbling before the COVID pandemic? Uh, you, well, it wasn't much to do with COVID too much. Um, it's more to do with my own personal history. So I'm a, I'm a fan of AFC Wimbledon. Um, and I stood, there was problems going on at the club at the time, and for those who don't know, AFC Women's a, a fan-run club, and uh, as part of that, um, I stood as a, to become a member uh, of the board, and when I stood, one of the things I wanted to do was sort of look at how Wimbledon could have an influence in the wider football ecosystem. So, you know, I, you know that was my kind of manifesto, and I got elected on. Um, I'd written a few books and stuff, so I was kind of vaguely known in the club. And uh, the club gave me uh, the wonderful, wonderful remit of looking into ethos of football. It's got a lovely, broad, wonderful thing. So off I went off and, and spoke to uh, mates of mine. I used to be a sports journalist. So I spoke to people I knew in the, in the sports media, spoke to other football clubs and spoke to the Football Sports Association. And the message came out really clearly was the governance of football in England is broken and, and needed fixing. So, you know, what a lovely thing to take on, I thought. Um, so I spoke to uh, friends of mine at the Football Sports Association, and, and the fans groups had some sort of organisation. They were kind of doing that. weren't really getting far as fans groups, but they were, you know, they, they were well organised and they were doing. But what hadn't existed was clubs come together. Because um, a lot of clubs who were moaning about the way football was governed, they'd pick up the phone as one club and phone up the football authorities or the government, and the phone would just be put down because they were one club. So yeah. what we began to do was look at, well, what, what kind of clubs care about this? So we, we sort of had a few brainstorm sessions and we kind of came up with some very core principles of sustainability, community and integrity. And we started to look at what clubs also thought like that. And we began to bring them together and we grew from one to three to five to ten to now 34 clubs. And as a group of 34, well, actually, even a group of 10, the doors started to open in politics and in and in the world of, uh, you know, football authorities and so on, we're starting to get listened to. Um, but for us, the, the really big thing was it wasn't just about pointing and saying these are the problems in football, like crazy things like clubs spend more on players' wages than they actually earn and, 
the owners and directors test is not fit for purpose and equality standards don't mean anything. All those sort of things we were identifying. But we wanted to do is say, right, well, here is the, the solutions. So we started working with academics and experts in football as well. And they would look at these problems. And they, they've, a lot of them are people who are really frustrated policy changers who have done research on this. And we gave them an avenue, a place to actually start putting forward these ideas and these concepts to government and to clubs. So we have all these kind of solutions which are proofed by the clubs in our advisory council. And we come out with really strong recommendations about how football can change. So it's not just about identifying the problems, it's producing the solutions, which nobody had ever done before. And uh, that for us, in a club club environment, that for us made a huge, huge difference. And that's really why we're starting to see significant people listening to us and saying, well, well, there is a different way of football. It doesn't have to be that, you know, all the money stays in the top and we don't care about the smaller clubs or the community clubs and we don't reward well-run clubs and we let rogue owners, which unfortunately far too many fans know about being a, having a rogue owner. You know, 64 clubs have gone into administration in the top four divisions since the start of the Premier League. You know, it's not a well-run business or well-run sector. You know, if that was any other sector, people would be like, going, why the hell are you even going near this? Because it's bonkers, you know. Any other business person would go, going, this is just a crazy thing. You know, you're, you're throwing good money off the bad. And actually, sometimes bad money off the bad. But, like, yeah. you know, that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the situation. And we need to look at how do we encourage clubs to actually be sustainable? How do we start rewarding those who actually want to abide by the rules and actually want to do things right by their communities? Because they suffer because there are plenty of people who don't do that and it means you the temptation to compete to gamble is huge and you know like so many clubs like Barry and Macclesfield and you can go up further up the pyramid Derby and Reading and so on have suffered because of it and it's just it's still there and it, and it needs to change and that's basically where Fair Game got born and why Fair Game exists now so that was a really long answer actually to a very short question <laughs> Yeah, but it, but it's really interesting. And I mean, the fact that you've brought together and the thing I think that's really pleasing is it's very easy to say, look, this is wrong, but you're offering solutions. And so many times in the world today, nobody offers solutions. They just knock it and go, this is wrong. It's not working. It's broken. But if you can find ways to fix it, that's great. And I'm, I'm, my next question was going to be, what's been the response from the clubs when you put forward those suggestions to, to right the ship, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, uh, generally really supportive, but I think what's really good is that they give it a realistic tint. So we have these solutions. The academics are often people who kind of studied it, looked at it, and kind of looked at the, the wider situation of finances or equality standards in a wider environment. But taking it into a football context gives, needs to be, needs, means there needs to be tweaks. It can't be the same all the time. So that's what's really interesting. You know, we did a big thing on governance, uh, new governance code that we've drafted. Which is one thing the independent regulator wants to do. We want to kind of say, well, here it is, you know, let's cut and paste it. We've done it. Um, and what was interesting about that was the tiering. So, you know, clubs at different levels can afford to do different levels of scrutiny. So it's obviously the smaller club isn't going to be able to fill in a, a 90 page like governance report and like abide by all of that because it's too much. But a club like Man United and Ipswich or Ipswich, whatever, even at that level. Um, potentially can because they've got all those resources already there in place and they've already got people who look at that sort of stuff. So it's about also making it horses for courses. Um, and that's why I think when we've had our clubs feedback, that's been really useful. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you you touched on as well the community, and I think that's one of the things that seems to be getting lost now. Like, you know, when I was growing up, the football club stood for something. It represented your town. It represented the people from there. And people were really invested in that club. And it just seems to me now that that's almost completely gone. Some of it probably because we've got these overseas owners or businessmen buying the clubs who have no connection, don't learn the history of the club and not interested in it, you know? Yeah, that's that's one of the things that we really need to look at um, changing because uh, owners come and go, right? You know, owners get bored, they die or whatever, they they, they disappear. Uh, what remains is the club badge and the club club colours, right? That's basically it. Uh, the supporters, right? So owners need to look towards being a custodian of a football club rather than an owner, and that's quite a different mindset. But there are plenty of clubs out there that do think like that. Um, and equally, when a club gets into financial problems, the place to turn is the community, right? So that's what gets your club right at the heart. If a club is at the heart of a community, if you go to the local schools and the, the PE is being supported by that club, if you go down the high street and there are food banks being backed by the club, if there are like dementia clubs and you have walking football, all of that's happening at your club, the club becomes a hub of a community again, like it used to be. And you want to see the situation where you walk down the high street, your local high street, and they're all wearing that local shirt. And maybe they might have a Premier League team, but their their second team is that local club, you know, and that's where they want to go on a match day because they're probably priced out of a lot of the Premier League games. Absolutely, that sort of community spirit is what keeps clubs alive. And if you're looking at long-term sustainability, encouraging and incentivising clubs to invest in their community is the way forward, because that's what maintains a football club. You know, we should be in a situation where you don't have an owner benefactor model. The football clubs can financially survive without having to have cash injection. And that may sound a million miles away, but when you think about the amount of money that goes into the, the English football system, 6.7 billion in the latest TV rights, a fair distribution of that sustains all those community clubs and sustains all those communities. When you think about the service a football club offers to its community, it should be a win-win. It should be a really obvious win-win. The only way you're going to get to that stage is when you look at um, people having and holistic oversight of how best to distribute that cash, because that's when you start seeing the change. If you have the distribution of that being controlled by those who have a vested interest in maintaining their own selfish well-being, then it's not going to benefit the other clubs. So we need to have a look at a real strong re-look at this about, you know, what does it mean to be a fan of Swindon? You know, what should it be like for walking down the Swindon High Street? You know, if the Swindon High Street had club shops on that high street, knew that all these kind of like other social activities were happening at, at, the, at the football club, you know, and there were so many other things. And you felt like when you went through there and you're wearing a Swindon shirt, you knew that you were representing Swindon and you were like part of that whole community. You felt like that together. That means if the club ever goes into crisis, you've got a ready built army of supporters that are going to step up and try and do the best they can for Swindon. Um, while the rest of the time, the Swindon football club is benefiting the town. Yeah. That, can be replicated and should be replicated in 144 different locations across England and Wales because those are the 144 professional football clubs that already exist. And if they were given a tiny slice of that 6.7 billion, it makes a huge, huge difference in all of those areas, both for the club, but for the community. And that's the bit I think we need to shift that focus towards doing. 
because, you know, if you do that, you get more people interested in football, you get more people going through the turnstiles, you get better academies, you get a better sense of footballers coming through. It should be long-term a fantastic win for the whole ecosystem of football in England and Wales. Um, and that, that way of thinking is something that we need to do, and it's only going to happen if you have that independent oversight. Without it, then we're left in a situation where all that matters is that owner who has nothing to do with that community getting richer and richer um, on the back of a TV money without actually thinking about what does it mean to be putting on that shirt of that club. You know, yeah, that I mean, disconnect. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you look at a lot of yeah. Premier League fans, a lot of Premier League fans now go to the football and it's like going to the cinema. You know, it's an entertainment. There's no real social connection going on as much as there used to be. You know, I've certainly been to a lot of the big Premier League grounds and you can get that sense of entertainment rather than the sense of connection, which you yeah. get a sense of connection the further down the pyramid you go. Um, and, you know, you get a lot of disenfranchised Premier League fans who remember what it was like to feel that connection, to go through and, and feel that real, like, your club cared about it. And when they kissed the badge, that actually, actually meant something. Oh, Whereas now, yeah. too many people see it as a hollow gesture. Yeah. Oh, I hate that one, I must admit. But, I mean, you touched on right at the beginning, you said about how the ownership, um, the fit for ownership test is a bit of a joke. And, and I mean, I think, again, there's an area there where if you look at it where the, the owners of the clubs do the wrong thing and yet the players and the fans are the ones who get punished. Now, to me, it's ridiculous taking off points or relegating a team if they've done the wrong thing because nine times out of ten, the players might not know, and certainly the fans don't know what's going on, and yet they're the ones getting punished every time. Yeah, I mean, exactly that. I mean, the issue with that is the owners and directors test is about as fit for purpose as a chocolate teapot, right? So, I mean, it's, it's like, it's really useless. I mean, because it's, there's no scrutiny. The issue is that a lot of these owners should never have been owners in the first place or never been given that opportunity to take control of the club. It's not renewed. So it's not like you go back and go, right, yeah, I bought this club and now, it's fine. Um, you know, I've changed the way I work and I'm kind of ripping this club up from selling all the assets. What we're hoping with the independent regulator is that you get an owners and directors test that is very transparent. That means an owner has to submit um, business plans that are six months, tells you about how that club's going to be sustainable for six months and that it's re renewed every year. So that if you become, you know, you look like you're becoming rogue then there is opportunity for the independent regulator to step in and say, right, okay, well, this needs to change and actually, in effect, put some clubs into special measures. That's the sort of thing that we need to see to make sure you don't get the rogue owners. And equally, you know, how transparent are the owners and directors tests? Completely not. It's decided by a bunch of people who've got vested interest about whether they think about whether this person should be an owner or not. Sitting in a dark, smoky room, we never see published notes. We don't know what the questions were. We don't know what the analysis was. It's completely, you know... It doesn't exist in terms of transparency. That, again, fundamentally wrong. We need to know right up front about where does that money come from? What are these people like? Are they people that have done things that are wrong overseas? You know, are they the right people that we want to be seeing owning our football clubs? And why that's really important is what it does do is it puts off the people who actually are actually good because they're going to go, why the hell would I get into a football system that's full of like people who we don't know what's going on? There's no transparency. There's no kind of accountability. You know, you'd be like, why would I invest in this? It's stupid. What we need to do is change it to make it that it is accountable, that there is transparency, that it is well run. 
and that there are, you know, we do care about the clubs and we do care about communities. There are plenty of new businesses and ESR policies that would think that is actually a sensible way of going. At the moment, you know, you'd be like, why the hell do you touch this? You know, that's the reality. So we need to be looking towards a system that actually rewards well-run football clubs. And until we get that, we're putting off well-run businesses investing in football because it's just a bit of a silly place to be putting your money on. One of the other things that you said earlier was, you know, obviously these clubs are spending money that they're not bringing in. I mean, presumably a lot of that, as we know, is on these players that are getting unbelievable wages. How are you ever going to adjust that and get that back to a realistic level? Or, I mean, is there a plan in place from you guys or a suggestion at least as to how we can pull that back to reality? Yeah, I mean, I think what we need to look at is that there's um, several ways that have been discussed here, one of which is salary caps. So, you know, you used to say, well, actually, this is the amount you can spend, whether you have a hard salary cap for a division or whether you do it as a percentage of revenue, two different ways of thinking. So um, those are those are definite things. For us, where we're at is that we believe that uh, every club should be ranked on how well they perform in a whole range of things. We do it for our Fair Game Index. It's live. You can check it out on our website, fairgameuk.org. You know, you'll see it. And um, obviously, the higher you score, the more money you should get from the TV revenue because you're a better run club. And one of the key criteria on there is um, wage to revenue. So if you are the recommended FIFA amount, your wage from FIFA amount is 70% of your revenue spent on players' wages. At the moment in the championship, the average is about 106, 107%. Um, you know, so the, the, that's the average. So there are certain clubs that were spending way over that. Um, across the four divisions, the average is 90%. So that's telling you that yeah. most clubs are spending 20% above the away from FIFA recommendation. There are only a handful of clubs that are under the 70% amount. So, um, you know, that's where you've got a real significant difference. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. And I mean, we've got obviously a salary cap in Australia, but as we've seen over when was the A-League start, I think it was 2004, was it four or five, around that time. So sort of, let's say 25 years, there have been several clubs have been pinged for breaking it, finding ways around it. And that's the problem you have with the salary cap system is everybody looks to find a way around the regulations or there are, you know, ways that are done off the books. Yeah, exactly that. So that's why it needs to be stringent. You need to have transparency and you need to have, I mean, the other issue we've got in, in England and Wales is that there are 92 clubs, but there's 77 different ways that clubs are, uh, do their accounts. So you're comparing, you're not only comparing chalk with cheese, <laughs> with cheese, with like, I don't know, curry or whatever. You know, it's, it's like nothing's, nothing's, there's no, there's no kind of standard way of doing it. So we need to alter a system where clubs report in the same way. Um, and then Incredible. you can start looking, uh, you know, so it's, you've got to, it's, it just doesn't work. So obviously that means you've got a very easy way of looking, well, how can I hide this particular bit of funding? Because I've got this different set of accounts so I can do it in a different way, you know, so like, I don't know, Carlisle and Exeter might be totally different and certainly Man United will be different from Newcastle United and so on. So it's just like, how are we, how are we even comparing? So we need to get to a position like that that makes it harder for clubs to do exactly what you talk about, which is just put it in some other random account and get around it in a different legal way. So this whole issue 
isn't being addressed. And obviously, the problem you've got here is the people who are setting the rules are the clubs. And the way the clubs operate is you've got the Premier League, who are a nice little cartel looking after themselves, um, which is great for the Premier League in terms of promotion, but they're not actually, why would they want to change anything that might hold them more accountable? Um, and then in the EFL, the situation is that the EFL voting structure means that the clubs who control the EFL are effectively the top 10 in the championship because the voting is heavily weighted towards the towards them, which means they're not going to want to be more accountable or whatever because it benefits them, you know, and why would they want to have real-time reporting that actually, in the end, supports and stops, would have stopped what happened to Bury and Macclesfield collapsing. Um, so there's a whole load of, you can see the whole murkiness of it all, yeah. and what you need to do is kind of go, well, this has been the case for a long time. So it's not like football can sort itself because it certainly hasn't. It's had like how many decades to try and sort out and it never has it needs to go to people to look outside and say right what we care about is the health of the football system not um such and such a club about making sure we don't get held to account for what we're doing you know that's the reality i say all of this and i must stress there are a number of well-run good clubs out there that are trying to do the right thing but a lot of the time they're they're um, pushing against the string so you know it's um it's it's hard for them to do it, but they are trying. And that's why we came together to say, right, actually, we are the good clubs who want to try and make it better. Um, and that's, that's um, what's been really exciting. And we are making strides. But, it, you know, it's hard when you've got people that don't want you to succeed. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing I was going to ask you. Is It's fantastic what you're doing. It's a little bit depressing hearing if you don't know some of these things. But, I mean, it's great if you look at your website, the amount of people you've got that are offering advice, that are involved in fair game, and you read their profiles and, and you sort of go, wow, these people know, you know, they're smart people. They're not just Johnny down the street who's in the pub who's got an idea, you know. You've, you've got some really quality brains behind it. I mean, do you feel you're making progress? Yeah, totally. And I think you picked up on a really good point is, um, you know, I am not personally – the person with the solutions, right? And we are always about constant improvement. So our attitude is, yeah, this is what we said. Uh, help us improve it. Help it make it better. Nobody in the organisation will ever say that we've got it perfect because we never will. And we have to accept we never will. What we have to do is strive to try and make it as best as we possibly can. And we ask for people, wherever they are in the world, to come in and help us and support us. But that's really, like... The absolutely fundamental bit um, about it, and that's what's really key. Well, look, no, we've only got so much time, and I think we're running out. We've gone a bit over probably what I would normally have. Love to catch up with you again because I think this is really interesting, and I certainly think that uh, Australia needs a fair game over here because the clubs we have exactly the same problem where they're spending money and they're not getting the money back, so they're spending way more than they ever generate. And, and it's amazing how they even survive. Exactly that. Yeah, so watch out for Fair Game Australia in a year or two. Yeah? Look, fantastic. Thanks so much for your time. And keep up the good work with you and, and your, your wonderful team because football really needs to change. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, everybody. Uh, great, to, great to speak to you. Hi, I'm Mark Aduka, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show.
And that was Niall Cooper, who, as I mentioned, was the CEO of Fair Game. And hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I did. I could have talked to him for a lot, lot longer. I mean, John, I find it quite incredible, some of the stats that he was sharing there. 64 of the 92 clubs in the Premier League and the Football League have gone into administration since the Premier League started. That is an unbelievable statistic. Two-thirds. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, if, if that was a country, nation's economy, and two-thirds of the bids... <laughs> well, as he said, you, you just wouldn't go into it as a business. Why would you ever get involved in it? Because it's just never going to work the way it is. Have you, do you think that um, there's always been that sense about about football? Is it um, that's why private ownership ever came into the game from the beginning? No, is, no, because the way the way football used to be was it was very much set up that local businessmen would put into the clubs and they would be on the board and whatever. What changed it all was uh, when Irving Scholar at Tottenham Hotspur. He found out, so there was a rule, and I can't remember the exact number of it, in the uh, football regulations. It was something like 52A or B. Uh, as I say, please don't quote me on that. I think it's wrong. I'm just plucking the number from memory. But it basically said that no director, when selling their shares, could profit from those shares. So it meant that when these people who'd invested in the club left and they sold their shares to someone else, they could only get what they paid for them. Irving Scholar, who'd bought into Tottenham Hotspur, goes, this is ridiculous. You know, I'm putting all this money in to keep this club alive, to make it happen. So then he was the one who first changed everything. So what he did was he created a parent company which owned Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. And then that parent company he then put on the stock exchange and the rest, as they say, is history. So suddenly it became big, big business. And that's why you see a lot of clubs getting rid of a manager, not because of the performance on the pitch, but because their stock price is beginning to drop. And so the manager gets the blame for that, and it's get another one in. But so, yeah, it's changed. And I think, sadly, then it became a case of they're buying players against their stock market price because you buy a big player, it'll push the stock price up. And that's and then what's happened, though, in the lower levels where they're not on the stock market or anything like that, they're trying to compete with the big boys and are spending money they don't have. Say the market crashes. Oh, exactly. Do, do, do their shares go up because suddenly more people are going to be, you know, you know how these things, entertainment um, tends to have a, a boost, significant boost when there's these dark times because people are going to the movie or they're watching me. They're investing more time in imagining a better life than they are just getting on with the life they're having. I don't know. I'm not a stockbroker. Not, no, yeah. no. But I I'm, couldn't answer that. But I, you'd think that they would plummet like everybody else. And where, th- would that, where would that leave someone like the FA? Yeah. Or, or FIFA, for that matter, if suddenly half of the, the major clubs in the world just, uh, well, we're insolvent. And we've got to shut our doors and uh, the competition's going to end. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, what you're seeing is this is why we keep hearing this Super League coming up, that all the big clubs in all the countries in Europe want to form a Super League. You know, I mean, it's, again, it's purely driven by money and greed uh, with no recognition of how the competitions that they're playing in have actually created what they are. And without those competitions, they would be nothing. And, and I don't think you're going to find, even if they created the Super League, 
fans are going to go across to it. I think fans, if you look at most of the leagues in Europe, which have been around for a long, long time, there's so much tradition, there's so much history. And one of the things I'm really pleased Fair Games trying to do is, again, bring back some of the credibility to things like the FA Cup. Because, you know, it's been treated pretty poorly by some of the big clubs who are like, oh, we don't want to win that. We're not going to put out a second team. Um, we need to restore the prestige to a competition such as that. We're, we're, we're starting to... Some of these clubs now are so big. I think a lot of that tradition leaves. What you're taught, that sort of league tradition leaves. Because imagine, imagine if Liverpool, say... Um, tomorrow the FA said we're taking all your points off financial irregularities uh, you're now at the bottom of the table I mean can you imagine what the suicide rate would be like in Singapore that people would be launching themselves out but, of but, but that's what I touched on in the interview because you know what annoys me about that is the, the stuff that's going on that results in the clubs getting penalised and losing points often the players don't know about it yeah, one individual, but the fans certainly don't know about it. But as we were touching on in the interview, the owners know about it, yeah, and they're involved in it. But the owners are the ones who should be punished, not the fans yeah, the, and the, the players. The, the point I'm making is that this Super League isn't designed for the people oh, I, I know in that. Liverpool. Yeah, I understand. It, it's that. designed for the people in Shanghai yeah. and and in Mumbai. Yeah. And oh, I I understand the global brand yeah, and the money that they get from that. These clubs don't need anymore that traditional base of supporters that what you're you've been talking they don't they just the, the don't big one, yeah the big ones you're probably right the, but the ones that are going to go into super league yeah it's it's a mess it's you know and the other thing is what is it really driven by as you pointed out greed greed from managers and greed from players and greed from clubs and owners yeah okay so and egos you know the yeah the the player maybe not care exactly how much money. He just wants to be known as the one that's earning more than that bloke over there. But also, John, I mean, let's be honest. All of us, if someone comes to you and Absolutely. says, I'm prepared to pay you this to do what you love doing, most of us are going to go, okay, you really want to pay me that? I'll Ab do it. No problem. Absolutely. So where's the break put on it? Yeah, exactly. And that's what needs to happen. It needs to be, as he said there, you know, you have to stop... You have to spend the 70% of the revenue, not be spending more than the money you're bringing in. I mean, anyone that does that, that is spending more money than they bring in on players, it's lunacy. Well, isn't that almost fraudulent? <sighs> yeah, again. <laughs> to spend more than, to knowingly spend more than your income is? You would think you're operating in an insolvent. I yeah, don't know. Uh, is it insolvent? No, because the money is there, but it's just... You're basically working on credit, aren't you? But it, it, either way, how do you ever get out of that? By borrowing more money? Yeah. And then the next year you've got to borrow... But at what point do you start paying back money? Well, what they'll do is they'll sell one player to balance the books when they need to, and then they'll go back into the same cycle. I don't know. I'm just presuming no, that's no, what... No, that probably... You're right, yeah. Oh, we just got $25 million, so we can whack this in the... Yeah, it's like, well, the bank's probably going, hey, 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 you know, your credit card's a little bit high here. <laughs> so it's paid off, and then they go back to the same cycle. I, I don't know. I just think it's very sad. Man, I can't go $25 over on a credit card. Pounding <laughs> me how these, some of these clubs operate. Oh. It, it's so just... what's, the, the worst thing is, if they, when and if this collapses, this whole system of the way it's going, 
Well, hopefully with Fair Game it's not going to collapse because they're trying to change the way the game is structured. And the great thing about them is that they've got solutions. But the big thing is, and as, as Niall said in that interview, is they've got numbers now. Whereas when club was ringing up and going, we want to change this, no one would listen. Now they've got 34 clubs that have signed up. Well, and the, the, the so one, they've got a voice now. Is that the one-third of the clubs that didn't go bright? <laughs> <laughs> well, 64 in administration. That's 50%, you know. But look, I think the great thing, honestly, about Fair Game is they've got people in there who are putting forward solutions as oh, to yeah. how to write the ship. It's yeah. very easy to sit and go, this is not right, this is wrong. I've always believed if you can put forward an alternative if you're going to criticise something or a suggestion as to how things might have been done, that's far better than just going, this is crap, you know. And I think that's what they're trying to do. And they've got the ear of the government in the UK and hopefully... With time, they will eventually get enough clubs that say, enough is enough, we have to change. Well, what's, what's patently obvious is the current situation is in, in not sustainable. Correct, it's just, 100%. It, it, it's just not going to sustain itself. So they've got to do something. And yeah. at least someone is. Or it appears as though the situation up as till now is you know, almost like the, the American military don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> you know, they just, let's pretend it's not happening. No, it's, it's, it's very sad, but hopefully it does see a change, because I, I, I think actually, and I, I said this to Niall off air, was I think Australia needs a fair game, because, you know, the A-League, there's no clubs making money in the A-League, Melbourne Victory was one of the few that I think was balancing the books, and then if you look at below that, in the state level, certainly in Western Australia, there's not a single club that is in the black, because again, they are spending more than they're bringing in, and it's ridiculous. Every year, I never understand why they're doing it to win a league where now they don't even get prize money. They just get given credit for next season from the game's governing body. Well, let's face it. Under the current setup for a lot of sports in this country, your league and your club is nothing more than a conduit to the National Association. All you are doing is, is setting up players for them. International sports now just an extension of club sport. It, it isn't what it used to be. And that's all you're doing as a club. You are just supporting a national program and nothing else. You're doing the development. Mm, you're doing all of the work. And For nothing. Pretty much. But the thing I find sad about that is, and I know Rugby Union were, this was probably about five years ago, were up in arms because, again, the people that were electing the board had nothing to do with club rugby and they're going well, hang on a sec you know we're the ones that exactly what you're saying we're developing the players we're the ones investing we want to have a say on who the people are running our game and i actually think that that needs to happen across the board in sport in australia because the people that are getting elected to these boards some of them you just go like how the hell i mean there's one i i wrote on a piece on the blog is the financial um, head of finance for one sport and is on the board of another sport. And you go, how could you even allow that to happen? So as a competitor, because they're all vying for the same sponsorship dollars, he knows exactly the, the financial status of that sport and can go back to his own sport and say, okay, he even knows who they're approaching for sponsorship. And you're like, that's madness. How does that happen? I mean, you've got, you've got people who are the CEO of a sport in one state body who are on the board of another sport at the national level. And again, how can that be? 
Oh, they're multi-talented people, Mashley. Very talented. Very. Oh, and they, and they bring great expertise. Oh, they, they do. You never know. Maybe national board member here, finance office, financial officer here. What are they doing over there? Let's find out. Oh, you're, you're right. It's wrong. Yeah. Shouldn't happen. Shouldn't happen. Because. I don't know that there's a particular dearth of financial officers in this country at the moment, is there? <laughs> is there a shortage of them? Oh, I don't know. Probably as, as, as many, we're probably as short of them as we are lawyers. See ya. We'll be back next week. <laughs>